Brittany and Joel as well. I'm Siri about that. Um, my bad. We start a new sermon series today, and we're diving into 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, Thessalonica was founded in 315 by Cassander, who was a Greek commander under the army of Alexander the Great. Here's a picture of Cassander. Uh, and he named the city after his wife, Thessalonica, which is a great name. It's the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And because of its strategic location, uh, the city grew in wealth and influence throughout the ancient world. Um, we find Paul and Silas planting the first church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, but as was his custom, he went, preached to the Jewish synagogues and was there for, preached three Sabbaths there, and uh, the, he, the people began to riot. He upset the apple cart because a lot of Jews began following Jesus, and Paul and Silas snuck out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night, and uh, he, now he's, at this point when he's writing this, he'd been away from them ever since, and so he started his young, this young church there, but had to flee because of persecution. And now he's writing this letter to the church uh, in Thessalonica to encourage these believers that he started. Now, uh, I had once heard it said that there are two things in life that you can never be prepared for. Twins. Okay? I'm, I'm looking at Vic and Marcy. I know they have a set of twins. I know that uh, I, and myself, am a twin. Here's a picture of me and my twin brother. Uh... You guys can determine which one's which. But uh, whenever somebody finds out that I am a twin, they always ask this exact same two questions. The first question they ask is, did you guys ever switch classes when you were younger? Okay? And the answer, of course, is yes. And then second, the second question, it's, it's a notch up. And they're almost embarrassed to ask it, but they ask it anyway. They say, did you guys ever switch girlfriends? And they're almost bashful when they ask this question. Um, and switching classes is one thing, but switching girlfriends, that's, I mean, that's sneaky and mean. I mean, we did switch girlfriends, but it was sneaky and mean and hilarious. Uh, now, now that we're old, I have two kids. My brother has four kids. I remember holding his first child, Gabrielle, when she was just a baby. And she would look at me like I was her dad. And... There was, but there was something different, like almost like a look on her face. So, uh, she was confused, this tiny little baby face, looking at me, wondering, there's something different here. It's like she was saying, like, why does my dad smell so much better because of his, all the cologne? <laughs> and how did my daddy get more handsome along the way? Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at some twin truths in 1 Thessalonians 1. Some words and concepts that have been paired together in this chapter— and we just might see what the Lord has for us this morning. So let's start with verse 1. It says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we write a letter nowadays, which is not very often, uh, we all often start with the name of the receiver, right? Dear John, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, we say, sincerely, or God bless you, in our own signature. But in the ancient world, this was not the custom. In the ancient world, you would first identify yourself and then immediately say who the intended recipient is. So in this case, he says Paul, and he also includes some of his companions, Silas and Timothy. And then he says to, this is the, who it's writing towards, to the church of the Thessalonians. And then he says three words, grace and peace. And this is the first set of twins here in Scripture in 1 Thessalonians, grace and peace. 
these twin names, uh, they always go together, and there's a practical lesson here, that you'll never have inner peace until you experience God's grace. And actually, in this greeting, Paul is combining two customs of his day. See, when Greeks greeted each other, it was customary for them to say, grace to you. Okay, the Greek word is charis. It's where we get the word charismatic or charisma. Uh, To the Greeks, grace wasn't a spiritual term. It would be like saying, goodness to you, good day to you. Um, Grace was the Gentile greeting. And in contrast, when the Jews greeted each other, many of you know this, what did they say? Shalom, peace, peace be with you. And the early church was composed of both Greeks and Jews. And so by Paul uniting these two greetings, grace and peace, he's, he's creating a unifying statement for both Greeks and Gentiles, of which there was so much hospi- uh, uh, hostility between the two. Grace and peace became a distinct Christian greeting in the first century. And Paul said the same thing in his letter to the Galatians, um, in his letter to Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Grace and peace. What is grace? What is grace? I heard it said once this way, that picture yourself on Thanksgiving dinner, and you've got your family there, and you're ready to go, and then a homeless guy knocks on the door, and he says, I'm really hungry. And so then you, you know, you break the wishbone, then you cut some turkey, put some stuffing and some yams, and then you go, "Um, let me get him a little extra marshmallows from those yams. And then you put it, you know, you get it together, and then then you bring it to him, and you say, God bless you, happy Thanksgiving. And you think, oh man, I just showed grace. No, that's not grace. Grace is when you're having dinner with your family, and you go into a bedroom, and you see somebody sneak into your house through a back window, and he takes everything that's most valuable to you. And then he goes outside, comes around the front door, and knocks and asks for dinner. And you invite him in, and you wait on him as he eats Thanksgiving dinner before you and your family. That's grace. Undeserved favor. And the fact is, God has shown that abundantly to all of us. Undeserved favor. None of us deserve God's grace. In fact, we're going to be singing about God's grace in just a few uh, minutes. The scandalous grace of God. Two men were alcoholics, but they were converted. They both came to real faith in Jesus. The first man testified that the desire for drink was completely taken from him, that he could visit a pub or a bar and have no desire to drink. The second man said, Not a day has passed since my conversion that I've not wanted a drink, but God has kept me from yielding to that temptation. See, God deals with people very different ways. And there's no simplistic one-size-fits-all solution. For some, he may remove the temptation. For another, he may leave the temptation and give us the grace to overcome. And this peace that he gives us transcends understanding, Paul writes elsewhere. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. It's a peace that's not based on our outward circumstances. You can be in turmoil. Things can be falling apart. And you can still have that, that peace of God. He grants us grace. He grants us peace. Let's read verse 2. It says this, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. The second set of twins here is this, faith and works. Faith and works are twin truths that always go together, and the practical lesson we learn here is good works are the product of, of living faith. And just like the birth of twins, only one can be first. 
Faith is born first, and it produces good works. It's never the opposite. The Bible never teaches that if you do good works, it will produce faith. No, it says that your faith will produce good work, good actions. I have read a lot of um, theology books, commentaries on the scriptures. Uh, my, uh, I went to graduate school and got a seminary degree and had to read in Hebrew. And I've, I've read countless things on theology and the scriptures. And the two most powerful things in theology is the, the words, so what? So what? You learned Hebrew. So what? What does that mean? What does that do in your life? I believe in Jesus. So what? I believe in post-tribulation rapture theology. So what? I believe in once saved, always saved. I go to church every Sunday. So what? So what is the question that pierces through fake spirituality and begs the question, how has your beliefs about God changed you and changed the world? So what? Doesn't matter how good you are or what you intellectually believe, bringing your mind to a certain ascent of knowledge. No, so what? How is that affecting you, your life, your love, your family, your friends, your world? It's only by faith in Jesus that results in good works. We don't separate these twins. They belong together. C.S. Lewis summarized it best when he wrote this. Regarding the debate about faith and works, it's like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is most important. It's true. They go together. And so if you say, I have such faith in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't result in loving actions in your life or in your world, that faith, you might be putting your faith in something else. There was a young man who showed up for church on Easter. And as he was leaving, he shook hands with the pastor at the church at the door. And the pastor said to him, son, you need to join the army of the Lord. The man said, Reverend, I'm already in the army of the Lord. And he says, well, why do you only show up on Christmas and Easter then? And he says, I'm in the secret service. <laughs> God isn't looking for people in the secret service. Someone has said that there's no such thing as a secret believer. Either the secret will destroy the belief or the belief will destroy the secret. Either the secret will destroy the belief inside of us or the belief, our conviction of Jesus will destroy the secret and it'll become no longer a secret, but it's in neon, flashed on every page and every day of our lives. Let's read verse three again. It says, but we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, second set of twins, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. This third set of twins is found in the statement, your labor prompted by love. It's love and service. Love and service. You can serve without loving, but you can't love without serving. If, you, if I say to my wife, I love my wife, I love you, babe, but I, I never serve her in any capacity at all and just really demand that she serves me, that's not love. That's slavery, <laughs> okay? I just watched Wonder Woman uh, yesterday. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a great movie. There's this woman, she, 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 Wonder Woman asks, what's a secretary? And the girl says, well, I just do whatever he says. And Wonder Woman says, in my country, that's called slavery. <laughs> 
You can serve without loving, but you can't love without serving. Look at Genesis. This says this in chapter 29. This is Jacob and Rachel. It says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That's labor and love, right? He served seven years to get Rachel's hand in marriage, and it seemed just like a few days. Can you guys picture seven years ago? Man, that was a long time ago. Uh, just seemed like a few days because of his love for her. Jacob loved Rachel, and he worked for her seven years just to get her. Now, we don't have any pictures uh, today of Jacob and Rachel, but this is an artist's artist rendering of what they may have actually looked like. Um, this is Jacob and Rachel. Uh, Monday nights on ABC. Uh, I uh, had a, a baby girl a month ago, um, Ivy, and I don't know if you guys know this. Some of you parents would know, but uh, when, after the baby's born, they let me cut the umbilical cord, and I was like, yeah, I'll do it for sure. I cut it, and then they put this little tie thing on it, and then she's got like a hard belly button like that sticks out part of the umbilical cord for like a couple of weeks. And so she's at home with us, and we were always wondering, how's my son Dex going to respond, right? Dex has been the center of attention at our house for three and a half years, and now we bring this new baby home. We're like, what's his response? And as soon as he sees her, he's just like, what's that? And this is a little umbilical cord. He's like, I don't have that. Mommy and Daddy don't have that. What is that? And we said, oh, it's just an umbilical cord, uh, umbilical cord son. It'll fall off. And so he just hung on that word. And now babies do a couple of things really well, okay? They sleep. Uh, they poop and pee, and they cry. And every time Ivy cried, Dex would crawl up on the bed and go, it's okay, baby Ivy. It, it's just an umbilical cord. It'll fall off. He thought that every time she cried, it was because she had this umbilical cord attached. Now, uh, uh, you guys also know this. Babies don't sleep eight to ten hours at night, Right? You're up throughout the night. And Sarah and I, whenever she would cry, we would wake up and still do. And we would uh, change her diaper and we would give her a bottle. And uh, we did this because we love Ivy. And it, 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 it's easy for us. Like, I mean, it's not like we're excited when she wakes up crying in the middle of the night. But we do it because it's a labor of love. It's something that we can easily wake up in the middle of the night and do this. If there was something that was optional uh, to wake up and just, you know, type on a calculator 10 times 10 and then hit equals and then go back to bed, we set our alarm, we'd snooze through that all the time. Because th there's no connection there. It's just uh, details. It's just a task. But because we love our daughter, it's easy for us to wake up two, three, four, seven times in a night and hold her. How can you labor in love? How can you serve one another this week? Maybe your spouse, maybe your kids. Maybe don't wait till this week. Maybe just start like right now, like right after church. How can you serve the person you're riding in a car with, talking on the phone with, text messaging with, even though you shouldn't be text messaging while you're driving? Who can you love this week? Who can you serve? 
Let's read verse 3 one more time. I mean, we're reading this a ton. We remember before God and fa- our Father your work produced by faith, second set, your labor prompted by love, your third set, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this fourth set of twins here, we're going to kind of camp out on this one because I really feel that this is the Lord's word for uh, some people very specific here this morning. Hope and endurance. Hope and endurance. Hope is the power to hold on when you want to quit. I really feel the Lord is, is speaking this over many of us this morning. One of the strongest temptations in the walk with Jesus is to throw in the towel and quit. Perhaps you've been struggling for a long time with a problem and you're sick and tired of keeping on. Hope is a powerful force. Mike mentioned that, right? He wants these, these refugees living in a foreign country to have something called hope. Rabbi Mitch Hurwitz tells a story about how a New York University concert, there was a distinguished uh, pianist playing uh, this beautiful concerto, and he got suddenly sick and had to leave immediately. Sold out auditorium. There was an old music teacher at the college nicknamed Herman who rose from the audience, walked on the stage, and he sat down and with great mastery completed the exact performance of this famous musician. And at a party, kind of following the concert, many people asked how he was so gifted and how he was able to play from memory something so beautiful. And Herman said that in 1939, I was a budding young concert pianist. And I was arrested and placed in a Nazi concentration camp. Putting it mildly, he said that the future looked bleak. He says, but I knew that in order to keep the flicker of hope alive that I might play again someday, I needed to practice every day. So I drew a keyboard on my bedboard and I began trying to play late one night. The next night I added the second piece and soon I was running through my entire repertoire. He said, I did this every night for five years. And it so happens that the piece I played tonight was part of that repertoire. He said that constant practice is what kept hope alive. Constant repetition and practice kept hope alive. He says, every day I renewed my hope that one day I'd be able to play again in real freedom. It was his hope of performing again, the ability that gave him the ability to endure the harsh, rough, hellish conditions of a concentration camp. The Bible says that our hope is sure in Christ. It's sure, it's certain regardless of what we're going through. Paul wrote most of his letters through uh, in, in a prison. He wrote them from a prison where he says things like the peace that transcends understanding. Paul's writing that to the Philippian church while he's arrested in Rome. When Paul would go into serve at a place, he wouldn't look at a ho- for the hotels. He would go check out the prisons because he knew he was going to end up there. And when he preached, revival didn't break out. Usually it was a riot. The man who wrote the most about hope personally endured shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, imprisonments. And in spite of this, his hope in Jesus gave him endurance to hang in there. Hope. Pastor once told me that when you get to the end of your rope, just tie a knot and hang on. And since then, I've really come to believe that When Jesus is our rope, you're never going to come to the end of him and that we're not actually holding on to him. He's the one holding on to us. Our 
Hope is certain in Christ. Are you tempted to give up and quit? Maybe God's given you a dream or a vision and it hasn't happened yet. Keep going. Don't give up. Hang in there. Maybe you've been praying about something to happen for a long time and God has not answered your prayer. And you've said, God, please, please, please. And you've prayed this for seven years and it doesn't feel like a few days. It feels like 80 years and God hasn't answered. Hold on, keep going. Our hope is certain in Jesus. I read that um, this week in preparation, looking through the concept of hope. One pastor shared that hope is this. Hope is... uh, uh, Having only positive expectations. Having only positive expectations. And I, I looked at that and I was like, no. Like, I know that fits. Like, it's a good, clean acronym and it's easy to remember. But I disagree. And so I started to think through. I was like, this is just too positive. Um, and uh, positive thinking actually doesn't change our circumstances. So I was like, what's a better metaphor? And I'm searching through hope, all these different, I'm looking at thesauruses, like to try and find words that fit perfectly for hope so that we can remember it, take it home and apply it to our lives. And this is what I came up with. Um, Hanging on the person of Jesus. (laughs) Horrible, right? Like as far as memory goes, like this is not super clean and a great equation. But the truth, I believe, is so much greater. Hope is hanging on the person of Jesus. It's not a concept. It's not positive thinking. It's clinging to the God who made us and knit us together in our mother's womb and trusting him in the midst of that. It's not just positive thinking. It's actually clinging to a rock and the waves are crashing around and the rock's not going anywhere. One of my favorite poems of all time says this, and it'll be on the screens. I walked a mile with laughter. She chatted all the way, but I was none the wiser for all she had to say. Then I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. Some of you that are a little bit more mature or old, whatever you want to call it, I like mature, you know this to be true. We learn so much more in the valleys of life than we do when everything's peachy keen. Now we're only in three verses right now, so let's finish chapter one. We'll read quite a bit here. It says this in verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. It says that their reputation is known throughout the ancient world. 
Not just from their words, but actually from deeds. Our last set of twins is this. Jesus is present and Jesus is coming. We live in the present, but we work for the future. This, this phrase, um, the Lord is coming, in uh, Aramaic, it's the word Maranatha. Maybe you've seen this. There's a, there's a worship record label called Maranatha. It means the Lord is coming. Reminds me of a little old lady who heard the expression Maranatha while she was visiting another church. And she liked it so much that she wanted to bring that phrase back to her own church. And she was determined to kind of introduce it and kind of get it flowing in her own fellowship. The problem was she got the wording slightly wrong. And she wondered why people looked slightly shocked as she said it. She said, marijuana, my brothers and sisters, marijuana. No, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. There are eight times more references in the Bible to Jesus' second coming than his first. One-twentieth um, of the New Testament uh, speaks of his second coming. Twenty-three out of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to Jesus' second coming. Our hope is certain. Our hope is sure. Paul speaks of that here in the midst of persecution. The last words of the Bible are this. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. I want to invite Nathan and um, Jessica up. We're going to close with the song, Scandal of Grace. But I, I, I want to relate to this, this Thessalonian church. Their actions spoke so loudly that they were, they were known that their relationship with God, that the gospel was proclaimed and known by how they lived. How well does your life communicate the gospel? Um, when I was in Malawi in 2000, uh, I kept seeing the name of streets, of buildings, signs, even on some of their Malawi kwacha, their money, is a picture of a white guy named David Livingstone. David Livingstone. This is a picture of David Livingstone here. He um, was a successful Scottish physician. And he attended a meeting where a missionary was speaking about his time in Africa. And the missionary said this, On a clear morning, the smoke from a thousand villages could be seen where the name of Jesus has never been heard. And that vision was burned into Livingstone's mind. So he traveled back to Africa with that exact missionary, and he gave his life to the people of Africa. He traveled so far into the depths of Africa that even his guide said, we're at the end of the earth. And he found a towering waterfall. He named it Victoria Falls, which is now Zambia and Zimbabwe, in honor of the queen. All during this time, Livingstone preached Christ, healed the sick, and prepared some of the earliest maps of the interior of Africa. At one point, he was out of touch with civilization for six years. And the New York Herald hired a famous British explorer, Henry Stanley, to travel into Africa to search for David Livingstone. And after traveling for many weeks, Stanley came upon a white man, the only one within a thousand miles. And he uttered the famous line that drips with British understatement. He says, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. And Stanley wasn't a Christian himself. He was a rough, coarse explorer, a wicked man even in his own estimation. But meeting David Livingstone changed his life. Livingstone actually never preached the Bible to Stanley. He just showed him the love of Jesus. Stanley later wrote, and this is on the screens, For four months and four days I lived with him in the same hut or the same boat or the same tent. 
and I never found a fault in him. I went to Africa prejudiced against religion as the worst infidel in London, but little by little, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business, I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. A few months later, on May 1st, 1873, Livingstone was found kneeling by his cot, dead. And by his request, his heart was removed and buried in Africa before his body was welcomed home to the UK with a hero's welcome. Before his death, Livingstone had begged his supporters and his church to send his replacement. No one came. No one came. Nobody responded to his appeal. So eventually there was a preacher who returned and took up his mission, and his name was Henry Stanley. The atheist explorer who spent four months and three days with David Livingstone. Someone followed you around for four months. Would the words you speak and the deeds you perform make them want to convert to Jesus? They followed you around everywhere. Your character, your actions, your spirit, your love, would that make someone a convert to Jesus? Or are you in the secret service? Either the secret will destroy the belief or the belief will destroy the secret. I'll close with this poem. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds you do, by the words you say. Men read what you write, whether faithfulness or true. So what is the gospel according to you? God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would not just believe it, we would live it. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you've never believed it, you've never lived it, but you want to put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, there's no better place. If that's you this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you be bold enough to raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I want to make a commitment to Jesus this morning. I want to follow him. And secondly, if you're in this place and you've been living a little bit in the secret service, you haven't fully lived the way you know God's called you to live, a life of hope and endurance, a life of love and service, a life of faith and works, a life of grace and peace. God, we thank you for your scandalous grace. We pray that we commit to live that way for you in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs, in all of our relationships. And we ask that we'd be filled with your scandalous grace and we would live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with that song, The Scandalous Grace of Our Loving God. Let's stand and worship God.